Thank you all very much. And I want to welcome Katie Ford for what will be a fascinating talk. Katie is the author of three books of poetry with a new one entitled, If You Have to Go, forthcoming in August of this year. She is a professor of creative writing and director of the MFA program at the University of California, Riverside, and she has taught poetry for 15 years. Today, Katie will discuss the writer as witness. Thank you, Katie. Okay, thank you. Um, let me see, I want to be sure this mic is reaching the back. So is everybody in the back able to hear me? Yeah, sort of. Okay. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, sacrifice style and uh, <laughs> button up. <laughs> to get, this is the only way to get the mic closer to my mouth. So no photos. <laughs> no, I'm whatever. Okay. All right. So that's better? Yes. Yeah. yeah okay, cool. All right. Um, so welcome to the 11th hour. I'm really happy to be here um, always in Iowa City. It's a a lovely place to return to, as I think a lot of you know. Um, so today I am talking about the writer as witness. And um, sometimes I'll slip into saying poetry of witness. Um, but this talk really will um, be applicable to all genres. And the reason I might slip into saying poetry of witness is because largely our examples today are poems and also the um, literary term of um, language of witness or poetry of witness came about via poets. Um, in the 90s, Carolyn Forche uh, coined the term poetry of witness. And uh, at the same time, Szesla Milos was talking about the witness of poetry. So they had kind of phrases where they were flipping um, and Milos, in his book called The Witness of Poetry, talks about the fact that the, we are not witnesses in a poem, but that the poem witnesses us, either as the writer or as the reader. Um, and there's a theory of reading that I quite like and believe in, uh, which is that the reader is actually the one who completes the work. So that when you read anything, um, you are involved in an act of creation, um, that you are the finisher, and however that poem or uh, piece of prose, memoir, novel, whatever it might be, how it comes into your own um, physical existence and spiritual and intellectual existence um, thereby makes the creation occur. Um, no talking. There's teacher row right there. This is going to be trouble. Okay. Um, so poetry of witness, when Carolyn Forche started using the phrase, um, she was talking about it not just as the poems themselves, but as um, an act of reading and the position the reader is in when, um, when reading content that is of extremity. So when she's using the phrase poetry of witness, and these are some key terms on the board, uh, what she's talking about uh, is work by someone who is in an experience that they cannot get out of. Uh, so the writing is by the person in the extremity, 
That's kind of the purest form of writing of witness. It is happening to you. And it's not just any experience of extremity. It's extremity that is hoisted upon someone, forced upon someone via some external force, usually governmental or systemic, which usually goes back to some government or another. So there are experiences of extremity that are not connected to such outside forces. Um, and those you know, have everything to do with what you might want to write about, but they're not exactly um, what I'm talking about today. So for example, someone who is um, suffering from cancer might be in a very extreme scenario, um, facing their own mortality. Um, yet if that cancer is not connected in some way to um, some kind of outside power, then we wouldn't have it in this category. Now if your cancer comes from being too near the PGE plant um, and you are impoverished and therefore cannot move from your home, you cannot get out of your situation, that you could very well say could be poetry of witness. Um, so there is something in the quality of witness that cannot be escaped. Or if you were to try to escape, more harm or even death um, could threaten you. So that's the quality of the writing that we're talking about. Um, there's some, the terms here, there are some interesting ways to think about them. So witness, um, you can think of it in two ways. And the, the root word actually has two senses in Latin. One is that you're a witness, that you're a third party witness. I, something happened over here, I saw it, and I'm going to testify to it. It did not happen to me, though. So for our purposes, I'm calling that third party witness. I saw it, but it didn't happen to me. Now that kind of writing has very different concerns than um, primary witness. So primary witness uh, is you have lived through something. It has happened to you. Now experience is a very interesting word to me. Uh, it doesn't just mean what has happened to you, but what um, kind of the, the deeper sense of it is that you've crossed through danger. So the root word of it is you've crossed through danger. The experience then is, it has more gravity, of course, um, when we think of it that way. And thirdly, extremity is really the farthest reaches of experience. So the outer limits of human experience and the poetry we'll look at today on this handout, we'll see these are the farthest reaches really of what humans undergo. And if you also think in terms of outside forces creating this extremity, then we can have kind of a very chilling uh, lifelong meditation upon the fact that it's really systems um, and governments that uh, put humans into the farthest reaches uh, where we could rightly argue no humans ought to be. Now individuals can also do this to each other. Um, whether they're a part of a system or not depends on what's going on. Uh, but things like, for example, domestic abuse, um, uh, kidnapping, 
um, you know, one-on-one -on -one violence. Uh, it will depend how it connects then to the system or not. Um, but that is another type of writing that I think today um, you can take some of these ideas into. Okay, um, now one thing I think that is the very most important thing to consider if you're embarking on this writing, either as a primary witness, it happened to you, you went through the experience, or as a third party, I haven't been there, but I'm going to write about it, is to think about your relationship to the experience. And um, the, the phrase that's helpful is in relation to, for me at least. Um, how are you in relation to this fact? Uh, the primary witness doesn't have to think about this very long. They're in it. You know, they're in the prison. Uh, they're in the detention center. We have poems coming out of Guantanamo, for example. They're in it. Um, if it's third party, for instance, if I start to write poems about uh, detainees in Guantanamo, and I'm third party, obviously, I have to think about my relationship to that as third party. And there's all kinds of relationships, um, but they have to be thought about. Uh, and this is the ethical burden on the writer who decides to take up third party witness. Uh, and it's very important because the errors that can be made here in writing are of much larger stakes than if you write about the lunch you just had, uh, for instance, in an exaggerated way or in a way that claims a relationship that you actually don't have or that perhaps makes a likeness that is not accurate between what you're talking about, the witness, and your own life. So I'll go through some of the kind of dangers of third-party witness a little bit later in the lecture. Um, but I would say primary witness, uh, the primary source, the poet or writer, um, has a kind of free pass and license to write about the experience they're in. And the questions, um, therefore, uh, the ethical questions, will be uh, less of a burden because of their license as the one undergoing uh, the extremity. Okay. All right. Uh, now, the poems I've chosen in our handout, and when I teach this as a class, which I've just taught this as a class, a seminar at, at UC Riverside, um, what I've done is choose poems where America is actually the guilty party. Um, and a lot of times, classes in witness or lectures in witness uh, tend to, if you look very closely at the examples, they almost um, dominantly are from the Holocaust. Now, why is that? We have a lot of wonderful literature and amazing literature coming out of that horrific experience. But America, in relationship to that experience, is not very guilty. America went in and is seen as um, the uh, liberating force, okay? The thinker and um, theologian James Cone, an amazing writer, 
who, um, he passed away about a month ago, um, but his last work was on the lynchings in America and how Christianity was used to condone those lynchings. And in fact, one of the practices of the time was to have your church service announce that there would be a lynching following and there would literally be a picnic and then a lynching. And Christianity was very much obviously involved in that. So James Cone, um, uh, in writing about lynching, and he thought we had to deal with our history of lynching uh, before we knew how to talk about wars and torture abroad, that we had to deal with our own, you know, our own guilt. Um, his, his quote that I love is he says, America likes to be innocent. So America likes to be innocent. Well, I don't really like to teach that way. I like to um, show where our country is culpable. And in fact, when one writes in third party witness, um, it's one's own uh, responsibility and culpability that must be considered. So what, what have I done um, or how am I living that depends upon the suffering of others, the suffering I'm writing about, perhaps. So one's own culpability is part of that relationship, and you have to find it. And it's not very um, easy territory uh, to look at oneself in that way. But it's very important work. Okay, so primary witness and if you look at your handout now, we're going to start with Home by the poet Warsan Shire. And if you don't have a handout, if you could sit by someone who does, that would help you. But if not, I'm going to read it, so that'll also be okay. Um, now, something Forche says that I think is very important is that when she was compiling the anthology Against Forgetting, which is, is a, a very phenomenal book, um, she says that when she was reading and reading and reading primary witness poems from international poets, uh, she said what she couldn't escape was that extremity left its impress upon the writing, its impression. So what is the impress of extremity upon the imagination? So what, what kind of is happening to language because of the extremity. Um, and there are lots of things that happen to language in extremity. Um, sometimes you see broken speech. Sometimes you see the writer writing catalogs of things they used to have and now are no longer available to them. Or catalogs of what they have now, um, now that they're on a forced march, or now that they're imprisoned. Um, or now that they're detained, what do they have? What's left? This is a very common thing that happens in witness poetry, is a cataloging of what is left. Um, another thing, and we'll see this in Shire here, is that the literal description really doesn't feel like enough. And so figuration is, is leaned upon. Um, uh, you know, in some way, uh, the metaphorical um, comes forward in very powerful ways. So 
let me read, and this is an excerpt. So when you hear the kind of rush of language, this poem actually is about three pages long. So she discovered some kind of um, momentum that drove this poem forward. You might know this poem, um, perhaps it kind of, uh, well not kind of, it went viral. Orsan Shire is a very young poet, she may be 30 at this point. She lives in London now and her parents were refugees out of Kenya um, to England. Um, and so she wrote this poem, Home. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Your neighbors running faster than you, breath bloody in their throats. The boy you went to school with, who kissed you dizzy behind the old tin factory, is holding a gun bigger than his body. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. No one leaves home unless home chases you, fire under feet, hot blood in your belly. It's not something you ever thought of doing until the blade burnt threats into your neck. And even then, you carried the anthem under your breath, only tearing up your passport in, an airport, in airport toilets, sobbing as each mouthful of paper made it clear you wouldn't be going back. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. No one burns their palms under trains beneath carriages. No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck, feeding on newspaper, unless the miles traveled means something more than journey. And then it goes on and on. Um, so what are her techniques here, and what is the imp impress of the extremity upon language? If you watch the poem um, in, in its techniques, it's, all, it's going to go back and forth between the figurative and the literal. Okay, so she does have literal statements here, um, but it's as if once she says, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark, once she says that, it actually doesn't suffice. There's more and more and more to say. So the insufficiency of language is often a mark we see in witness poetry that I just articulated something, but there's more likeness. There's more to say. Um, and actually, if you, if you are, um, if you kind of want to nerd out on the difference between metaphor and simile, the metaphor is an equivalency. This is that. Home is the mouth of a shark. It's not likeness, okay? I mean, it's likeness buried, 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 but it's expressed as an equal sign. So it's a much stronger statement than a simile with likeness, like or as or whatever. So the metaphor then, no one leaves home unless mouth, home is the mouth of a shark, will in, you kind of force us um, into a revelation that wouldn't have been there otherwise. And so it's more than the literal. Um, but then we get the literal statement, you only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. And she's going to weave this technique over and over and over. Now why, um, 
why is it so necessary to define the terms of the extremity? Uh, my own thought about this is that the extremity has created a new world. Um, your life has been over, kind of abended. Uh, the realities have been overturned. And realities that um, you, know, you put in place, perhaps, the life you have made, is now under the pressure of other realities. And this is also a definition of perpetration of violence, that one person is now overpowering your life to create a reality of your life that was not there before and that you would have not given permission to have made. So there's a new world. It's a horrible world. But it demands a kind of new speech and naming. So I think, um, in a way, uh, primary witness, the reason we have you know, so much good work come out of this is because there's a newness to the reality. Um, and in the same way that in Genesis, Adam's naming everything, you're naming the world. You're naming the world around you. And the catalogs, I think, have to do with that kind of impulse. Um, so you could say, for instance, the feeling of inspiration a poet, a primary witness poet might have is feeling compelled to name things that are now in existence. Um, this is a source of, um, of, of that sensation, I think. Um, now, if you turn the page over, uh, I have two poems that come out of Iraq. And they're both, they're both excerpts as well. I don't really believe in excerpts <laughs> of poems, but um, you can go find these poems as well. Uh, and I've, I've put the books, uh, book titles on this sheet if you want further reading or resources. So. Um, here we have a negative catalog. So this poem, No Way, by Zahim al-Nasr. Um, listen to what he's going to do with that, that cataloging I'm talking about. No way to the inn of the mists, to the tavern of drunken joy. No way to the girl who is waiting in al-Alqawas to tell you the way is clear. No way. There is no way for you. No way for a bright guitar. Only the spiders that are sucking the light out of our speech. No way to the seashore. And then he goes on and on as well. So saying what is no longer there, we often get those expressions as well. Um, often, these types of poems become love poems, because they're love poems for what's gone for that person who is now in some other experience. And here we have an Iraq that America has gone into and um, destroyed in many, many ways um, and created a new reality for uh, the people living there, one that is arguably and almost certainly, well, I can't say certainly, but there are Iraqi poets who would say it's far worse there now than it was prior to our invasion. Um, one of those poets um, is the um, Iraqi poet Dunya McHale. Uh, and if you're interested in 
um, an individual volume out of Iraq, um, I recommend her book, which is called The War Works Hard. Uh, she actually left Iraq in the 90s um, because uh, she was under direct threat from Saddam of torture or death because her writings, although she was writing in metaphor as a kind of code, because there was actually an office of the censor, that's just what it was called. I mean, dictatorships are very clear about this, just we have an office of the censor. And she was called in and she was writing metaphors about Saddam um, as if he were a Yeti, a kind of snow monster. And um, they said, who's this Yeti? Is that Saddam? No, 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 it's just a, it's just a snow monster. And uh, she defended herself and by saying it was all figurative. Now, she had to write in figuration to protect herself. So very often, witness poetry is quite good because it has to become figurative, um, a kind of code that the people know exactly what someone's referring to. Poets under Stalin, for example, writing in code um, about Stalin. So you hear voices like um, Anna Akhmadova describing the city, the Russian city of Varanesh, and she says, uh, the city is encased in ice. And then we get this whole ice scene uh, that is clearly the government descending upon the people. Um, but still, that was also dangerous, and it was dangerous for Mikhail, and she was told the next day by a friend who was in the newspaper, the state newspaper, that you need to get out now. And so she left and now is in America, and she's become an American citizen. Um, but out of Iraq, this amazing book, Flowers of Flame, now it's very hard for poems sometimes to come out of other countries in this kind of distress because the people are refugees and they're fleeing and you don't always know where the, the poets have gone. And very often the poets are the first to leave the countries of danger because they're the first to be under threat from the dictator. Um, uh, so internationally, uh, the poet is the one you want to silence. Um, and so um, we, we have difficulty, th but this collection, Flowers of Flame, um, collects poets <clears throat> in and out of Iraq, and also then the translation is an issue. So you can get the poems, then you have to find translators. So we get a kind of delay sometimes from this work coming out, um, coming out of, of other countries. In the, in the case of the Guantanamo poems that I mentioned, there's a book, and it's in Prairie Lights, I saw it the other day, it just, it's, it's called Detainees Speak, Poetry, Poems Out of Guantanamo. And there's about 22 poems in that book. Well, why are there 22? Are there only 22 poems written in Guantanamo? No, there were hundreds of poems that came out, and then the United States censored which ones could go into this book. So there's many, many, many poems and there were many poets, um, and still perhaps are, uh, in Guantanamo um, uh, who were writing, um, sometimes not given uh, an implement to write with, and so were writing um, with their fingernails on styrofoam cups. Um, and then these, we have a couple of poems in that book called Cup, Cup Poem One, Cup Poem Two, um, an amazing prayer poem, and often we see prayers come out of Poetry of Witness, but they're very contorted. Because it, again, if the reality of the world has changed, one's religious 
thinking might change as well. Not necessarily devotion, but thought. Um, so we have a, an amazing poem out of Guantanamo where the poet says um, he knows he's likely to die there. And then he says, um, I thank you, God, for making me a Muslim. And then despite, he keeps going on, despite what I know will happen to me. Um, okay, so this cataloging in no way, we see this um, over and over again. Um, more than one, less than two. This is going to express a question that, that I, I have very often when I read poems of witness, which is how, how is this person in extremity even writing this? In other words, how, are they, how does the human retain this ability to compose and organize and make with such kind of you know, logic and beauty? Um, how is it that the mind has kind of the resilience to do this? But over and over again, we see this happening. Um, so he asks this, more than one, less than two, how can a po poem be possible with so much shrapnel in your chest? One splinter would burn up a volume of poems. How can you extract poems and shrapnel from your chest at the very same time? Our fathers lied to us. They never told us this was possible. So this is a kind of amazement that we can have um, and feel very deeply about art um, and human ability. Uh, and that creation is, is the one thing that it cannot be taken away. Um, over and over, we see extremity. Um, this postcard below, this is Miklos Radnodi. This is a poem out of the Holocaust. Um, uh, Miklos Radnodi here is on a march. <clears throat> the Russians um, are advancing upon Nazi Germany, and the Nazis decide to um, move some people out of labor camps and march them back to Hungary. And so this is a Hungarian poet, Radnodi, and he dies on the march, and his wife, years later, knows that there is a mass grave. And she goes to the grave, and she knows who her husband is because there are poems in the pocket of his, his jacket. And this is one of the poems. But this is a man, he's, and he's writing the dates on the poem. We know how close he is to the date of death. So here is August 30th, 1944. I believe he died in October or November. Um, but, lo but look at the, the composition that's still available. And this is a love poem. Out of Bulgaria, the great wild roar of the artillery thunders, resounds on the mountain ridges, rebounds, then ebbs into silence. While here men, beasts, wagons, and imagination are all steadily increase. The road whinnies and bucks, neighing, the maned sky gallops, and you are eternally with me, love, constant amid all the chaos, glowing within my conscience, incandescent, intense. Somewhere within me, dear, you abide forever, still, motionless, mute, 
like an angel stunned to silence by death, or a beetle inhabiting the heart of a rotting tree. So, the, the impulse here um, is to express the, not just the extremity of his experience, but the extremity of his love for his wife. And that the witness here, in a way, is more to that love than it is to the conditions itself, although those are here as well. But, of course, it's very, it's very natural, but we don't think of it very often, that war poetry and love poetry are deeply connected. In other words, um, the war puts at stake the love. And also, we wouldn't care about wars as humans if we didn't love people. So the disturbance of the war and then the stakes of the war um, bring into very clear relief what someone loves and who someone loves. Um, so the expressions then of love um, become what this person wants to remain. Now, one other important um, quality about much poetry of witness is that the poet has, very often, has no sense that they will, they will outlive the condition. So this changes the quality of the first person in these poems. Radnoti doesn't think he's going to live. Thousands were marched out, and I think less than 100 even survived this march. Um, he, he very clearly believes he's going to die. Um, but what happens is that the writer then is not imagining a future self and is not in relation to a future self. Uh, and if you're an author, if you've written many things or you, you look at a trajectory of writing, um, I mean, I don't know who really wants to look at a, long, a lifelong trajectory of writing. <laughs> I get this question. Someone asked me, what do you, what's your plan for 20 years? I'm like, God for, forbid. I don't, like, this is very hard. I don't want to even think about that. So um, it'll happen, whatever. You know, it'll happen if it wants to happen. But, you know, Radnoti and others, the self is imagined as annihilated completely. And so it's not in relation to a future. Um, and so this changes um, often the voice, um, what one most wants to articulate. And you can kind of read these as almost dying words, last words. What does one want to say? Um, there are international traditions, and Japan has one of them, where the, the last words of the dying poet are seen as a kind of great, great treasure. And there's an anthology called Japanese Death Poems. And I remember having this out in my apartment, and my brother, who's right there, <laughs> he came to my apartment, and he was like, that looks like a happy book. Do you have, any, you have, anything, <laughs> have anything lighter around here? It just said, like, death poems, Jap you know, Japan. But they would, they would want to see what the poet articulated at the, la like the very last thing. Um, also an amazing um, anthology of, of work. Um, because, of course, um, the respect for that moment has inside of it 
um, a knowledge that something might be known at that moment that wasn't, that can't be known by the rest of us. Um, and so what, what might be those last things? Not that the poet says, but that the poet writes. And so the Japanese poet is wanting to write up to the la as close to the moment as possible um, to compose. Uh, I'll do one more, about five minutes or so, on third-party witness. Um, I'm going to have to skip over uh, Langston Hughes and Lorca and Diaz um, and Forche. But here is a little anthology for you. And get to um, C.D. Wright. I actually need to find my page. I think I... Margaret, I might need the handout. I can't find my third page. Oh, thank you, thank you. Okay. <coughs> so, so as you can imagine, um, we're, uh, some of us are lucky enough to be not in this position, um, but in this position. And writers often decide, um, I want to write about something um, horrible uh, that might be going on right now or in the past. And how do I do that? How do I approach that? What license do I have? And the question that will come to you as a writer is, who are you to write about this? And that's why your question of in relation to is very, very important. And you have to think about it and represent the appropriate answer to that question in your writing. If you're inappropriate about your relationship to uh, whatever you are writing about, and C.D. Wright here is going to be writing about the American prison system. So what might be inappropriate here? And I think we could say unethical. Um, I think one thing is to look at the experience, for instance, of prisoners and say, that actually is like this thing that happened to me once. So if we draw likenesses that are not apt, okay? So it's a kind of apples and oranges, but, you, but very high stakes apples and oranges. So if you say, this happens to them and it makes me remember this about what happened to me. This is not an ethical position to take. And you will, you know, you, the reader will know it, and the reader will, will not um, likely abide uh, reading more of the work, or um, will make a statement about it, perhaps. Um, but it is, you know, it's a very, it's a very old um, rule of making a, a simile. The aptness, the likeness has to be accurate. So even if you're describing two objects that have nothing of high stakes, you know, your reader can say, those aren't, those aren't like, they have no likeness, they're not apt. So that is something to consider. Also minimizing, also exaggerating. Again, this is also things that are not apt. Um, and, and what I mentioned before, not finding one's own personal culpability in relation to um, the prison system. 
So if I were to say, well, I didn't, nothing I've done has anything to do with American prisons. Well, I do pay my taxes, um, and those are funding them. Um, so to find where one is guilty is quite important. Um, and C.D. Wright does that in this book. The book is called One Big Self. And she and a photographer, Deborah Luster, and you can go online and see these photographs. Just Google One Big Self photographs. Um, they went into Louisiana prisons. Uh, C.D. Wright, a Southerner, and so is uh, Deborah Luster, a Southerner. And uh, Deborah Luster, the photographer, uh, her mother had been brutally murdered. And so for her to go into the prisons, uh, she, she admits in a piece she wrote about this, she doesn't even know why, like what compelled her. You know, when she, um, she had been so close to an act of such brutality. But she wanted to go in and take photographs of prisoners at their, you know, they got to choose if they wanted to be photographed, to have a memento to give families. So that they would then have, and she made beautiful tintypes, so an old-fashioned tintype um, of prisoners, and they could wear whatever they wanted and pose how they wanted in these photographs. And then C.D. Wright is talking to prisoners and um, bringing language out. So here's how C.D. Wright um, in a portion of the book, and it really is a sweep of one book. It's, it's really one poem. Uh, but here's what her techniques are. She knows she's third party, okay? So what will she do? I want to go home, Patricia whispered. I won't say I like being in prison, but I've learned a lot, and I like experiences. The terriblest part is being away from your families, Juanita. I miss my screen porch. I know every word to every song on Purple Rain, Willie. I'm never leaving here. Grasshopper in front of the wood shop, posing behind a coffin he built. This is a kicks camp. Nothing positive come out of here except the praying. Never been around this many women in my life. Never picked up cursing before. Down for manslaughter, 40 years. I've got three, one, seven, one, four, one, one. I'm 23. The way I found out is I was in an accident with my brother. He was looking at some boys playing ball. We had a head on. At the hospital, the doctor says, Miss, why didn't you tell us you were pregnant? I'm pregnant? I wasn't afraid of my mama. I was afraid of my daddy. I was supposed to be a virgin. He took it real good, though. The last time you was here, I had a head full of bees. See, what I did was I accidentally killed my brother. He spoke without inflection. Asked how many brothers and sisters did he have. On my mother's side, two brothers. Well, now one brother and two sisters. On my father's side, 15 sisters. Okay, I'm gonna stop there on this one. Um, but I think, you know, what C.D. Wright very clearly in this portion um, knows to do is to not speak 
to not put language on their lips that's hers, but to let their voices come out and with their permission to give their name or, or to not have a name. Um, and she's going to weave these things together uh, with poems that then also speak to her own, um, her own burden of responsibility. So there are poems in this book called things like Dear Affluent Reader. Um, she's one of the affluent as well, and she'll, she collects herself in that population. Um, and she kind of reaches to the reader and says, this is your position, but she doesn't alienate us with that. She brings us closer to the prison to see um, what structures um, our society has made and how those structures become a kind of visuality that we've accepted, that we drive past and say, that's the maximum security prison. You know, um, We get used to it uh, in a way. And uh, this is a very large problem because we stop seeing things. And that is what very often governments don't want us to do, is to see. Um, there's a, a wonderful writer, um, Nicholas Mirznov, who has an essay called The Right to Look. And he says, we all have a right to look. And when the police in any country say, if you hear something like, nothing to see here, move on, he says that is exactly when one must look. And certain structures are created that we get used to that we no longer feel we need to look at. And C.D. Wright asks us um, to look at, to look at it um, with very high accuracy. So you see here she also represents um, language where uh, the prisoners are saying, this is what I did. I killed someone. So she's, not, she's neither um, making a kind of rosy image, uh, nor is she demonizing. Um, and so she, it's a very... <laughs> You know, you imagine trying to write this book, um, and w the terrain you're in, there's, there's really landmines everywhere. And um, yet, at the same time, such things need to be written. Thank you so very much, everybody. Thank you, Katie. Thank Please. you. <laughs>